0: 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll be reading this morning, verses 20 to 25. Here is the infallible, inspired, and word of God. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to the unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Let's ask God to help us understand his word. I keep, O Lord, your household, the church, in your steadfast faith and love, that through your grace we may proclaim your truth with boldness and minister your justice with compassion for the sake of our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. I'm very unused to this arrangement. Hold on, let me see what I can do. I don't know what's going to work for me this morning. I'll just wing it here. Uh, It's really no secret that over the past 25 to 30 years, in uh, mainstream Protestantism and uh, broad evangelicalism, and even within significant uh, portion of Reformed and Presbyterian churches, that there has been a complete remaking of Christian worship. And we could say, in a sense, that part of that remaking began in the late 60s with uh, what's often uh, entitled uh, the Jesus Freak Movement. Uh, When a lot of the hippies uh, uh, sort of called an end to their rebellion and were uh, one to Jesus Christ, the preaching of the word, they were encouraged oftentimes to bring some of the pop culture into the church so it felt more comfortable to them. Well, over the course of the next 10 to 15 years, a new movement began to emerge within the churches uh, known as the con- Christian contemporary uh, worship music, sort of uh, soft and Murray, Barry Manilow-style songs uh, that emphasize love towards Jesus Christ and a sense or awareness of God's presence. Uh, that began to sort of reshape and remake the way uh, the church experience Uh, was felt by the believer. Instead of it being sort of traditional and formal and and sit down and then stand up and show reverence and awe and so forth, uh, the actual experience of the worshiper was one now of uh, a casual atmosphere, uh, sort of a time of, of joy and happiness, and the focus began to shift from reverence to celebration. That wasn't the end, however, of the remaking of Christian worship because towards the 90s and then after that, the Willow Creek movement began to take root within uh, churches across America which emphasized... Uh, the fact that the church worship wasn't just supposed to be a time of celebration and happiness and joy because the believer was experiencing that through the songs, but it was also now accented that worship was really for seekers, uh, people who weren't really Christians, people who didn't know Jesus, but people who were thinking about uh, how it would be good to have a relationship with God. And so the worship was restructured and reformulated and repackaged in such a way uh, that the Christian ease would be eliminated from the worship, and the atmosphere would be welcoming and warm, the songs would be light, comfortable, happy, upbeat, and the messages would be very relevant. No longer would the church talk about sin and guilt and alienation from God, but the watchwords were now what's practical. And so the sermons of the church uh, shifted from a focus on proclaiming law and gospel to a more relevant kind of proclamation, which was about helping you become a better you. And so the sermons began to focus on uh, time management and success at work and relationships, And a user-friendly Jesus who helped you do all of those things. Well, even that has begun to be reshaped and repackaged now in the last five or so years. Because uh, the culture, the young people who were sort of raised within that environment, realized that the culture which was embedded in that kind of worship was a good 25 to 30 years out of date. And so now the reshaping of worship begins to come through what's called emerging church and emerging worship, which is you take a little bit of the old style church that is really, really old. They like ancient, not. 100 years ago, or 50 years ancient, but seriously, try to go back to the early church and recover some of the ancient rituals and ceremonies of the church, and then what you do is you combine it with a heavy dose of what is local and what is trendy and what is cool. And so, again, you have another reshaping of the worship of the church, so it's designed to meet the tastes and needs of the worshiper as well as the seeker. Well, the fact is that all of this experimentation and reshaping and repackaging of Christian worship has been a complete and utter failure. Instead of the church growing, the church has shrunk in the United States. And so this morning, as we approach our passage and think about worship according to God's standards, we see here that the Apostle Paul basically sets forth principles which cut across the grain of what has been so popularly practiced and what has reshaped the life of the church's worship in the last 25 to 30 years. And the first thing that I want us to see about this kind of worship, which the Apostle Paul uh, Sets forth here in terms of principles to the Corinthians is that uh, uh, worship that is seeker sensitive is worship which God commands. A true biblical seeker sensitive worship is worship which God commands. And uh, you can kind of see that point emerge from verse 20 of chapter 4 key. Uh, The apostle uh, sort of breaks off what he has been talking about, it seems. He says, Brethren, don't be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, and in your thinking be mature. Uh, In context, of course, Paul has been pursuing the issue of desiring the best spiritual gifts. We can go over this quickly, verses 1 through 12. Paul accented the primacy of prophecy, because prophecy is understandable, and because prophecy therefore edifies the church. Verses 13-19, through 19, the Apostle Paul talked about the use of tongues. And he said, if we use tongues, it must be according to this principle. That if a person speaks in a tongue, pray that he may interpret. Because if he interprets, the church will understand. If the church understands, it will be edified. But if the tongues, that is, a, uh, a speaking of the gospel in a foreign language, is not interpreted and translated into a language understandable to the audience. Uh, the people who are worshipping will not know when to say amen and they will not be edified. So Paul attacks a particular problem with the Corinthian use of tongues. And we should assume that the Corinthians, or at least some of them, uh, were standing up and speaking out loud in church in a foreign language that nobody could understand. And they did this to attract attention to themselves. Paul said that's useless because it doesn't edify the saints. And now he takes up that same issue and tweaks it a bit and applies it to a different issue. And that is to the issue of evangelism. Basically what the Apostle Paul here is saying when he says, Do not be children in your thinking... Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. The Apostle Paul is rebuking this idea of using the spiritual gifts in an improper way so that it doesn't edify the saints and it doesn't benefit the lost. The only person that is getting anything out of this speaking in tongues is the actual speaker himself. Because those who have this capacity and this ability to speak in tongues, it seems that they use that in order to draw attention to themselves for selfish purposes, to magnify their spirituality and to get other people in the church to look at them as if they were really God's gift to the church. Now what the apostle is rebuking here in verse 20 is a mentality that uh, enjoys worship for selfish purposes. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is critiquing. Worship that is selfish. It's not what God commands. It's not what God desires. But the person says, I like it. It makes me feel good. It makes me the focus and the center of attention. And the Apostle rebukes that and says, I don't want you to be children in your thinking. Be evil, or rather be infants in your understanding and evil. So Paul takes that on first of all, and he rebukes that. And notice that he connects it now to the issue of speaking in tongues in verse 21. He immediately goes from this command uh, to be mature in their thinking to the issue at hand, which is the speaking in tongues. And he says, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28. I know he says in the law, but it's not really in the law. Paul is not confused. He's just using it in a summary fashion to refer to the Old Testament. And he says in the law, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 28. Now, he's going to connect this into the issue of speaking in tongues, and he's going to connect it specifically to the issue of speaking in such a way that benefits unbelievers. But before we get there, we have to understand what the Apostle Paul is doing with this quotation from Isaiah. In order to understand that, you have to go back to the book of Isaiah. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time in the context here of Isaiah uh, 28, but it's important for us so that we understand the application that the Apostle Paul is making of that verse uh, to the situation at hand in Corinth. And you'll notice here that within the flow of the context in Isaiah chapter 28, uh, God, through the prophet, is rebuking Israel. He says, to whom should he teach knowledge, or to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk and those just taken from the breast? Uh, In other words, what the prophet is saying here is that God has been speaking to you. He's been breaking it down uh, over and over again at a lower and lower level of understanding. And now God has broken down his covenantal message to his people Israel to the point that even a child, a toddler, could understand it. And the clear implication of the rhetorical questions is that even at that the message is not getting through. And then he says in verse 10, order on order, order on order, line upon line, line upon line, here a little there, here a little, a little here, a little there. And so what uh, the apostle or rather the prophet is saying here is not only God speaking at a level that even a two-year-old could understand, uh, God has repeated the message so many times that it's literally inexcusable that no one uh, would fail to follow it. And so then what you have here next in verse 11 is a message of judgment. Isaiah transitions and he says, Indeed, You could even say now he will speak to his people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. You see, what Isaiah is announcing is that there is going to be a change in the divine administration. Prior to this, God had revealed Himself in the law. Prior to this, God had revealed Himself in His covenantal purposes through the prophets. And yet Israel continues to refuse to listen to God. And so it's embedded within the law. Deuteronomy chapter 28, that God said to Israel, if you refuse to heed My commandments, if you refuse to follow My ways, if you refuse to live up to the standards of the covenant, a time is coming when I'm going to turn My back on you and I'm going to start speaking to you through foreign invaders. And that's precisely uh, how it's recorded in Deuteronomy 28, 47 to 49. God says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord God will send against you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, From the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. And so there it is. God had already said hundreds of years in advance that if His covenantal people refused to listen to His covenantal word, that eventually God would send foreign speakers to speak to His people because they had refused to listen to the clear revelation of His word. And so, when Isaiah says to Israel, I'm done talking to you as little children, I'm done repeating the message to you, now I'm going to send a foreign nation upon you to speak to you, it is a clear sign of covenantal curse to Israel. Now, you say, "All right, Paul, what in the world does that have to do uh, with the speaking of uninterpreted tongues in Corinth? And to be honest with you, I'll just say that there have been some in the Reformed and Calvinistic tradition who I think have misinterpreted uh, what Paul is doing here. There is one response to the whole issue of speaking in tongues which basically argues this, that because God says that speaking to his people Israel in a foreign language or other tongues, which is exact phrasing that is picked up in Acts 2 and also here, in 1 Corinthians 14, that it's a sign to Israel in the New Covenant that God has ripped away their place as a people, and He has substituted in His place Gentiles. And so there is a stream of thinking that sees that tongues, uh, in, in every instance, are really a sign of covenant curse against the Jews. And so when they look at this passage here, 1 Corinthians 14... Uh, verse 22, where it says, So then tongues are, are for a sign not to those who believe that the unbelievers. Uh, basically, they will argue that Paul is saying the unbeliever in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 14 is a Jew. And uh, the argument usually goes after that, that this was, or the speaking in tongues was a, a uh, sign of covenant curse upon the Jews, and it loses its significance uh, after the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Well, that might be the case in Acts 2. And I think that's a passage in some ways in how the language is used there uh, should probably be looked at just a little bit differently in terms of this particular issue of sign, uh, tongues being cov- a sign of covenant curse. But here, I don't agree with that interpretation. I would say that Charles Hodge is pretty much right on the mark as usual when he says, after... Uh, Uh, looking at this verse in context and how Paul applies it, Charles Hodge says this, Paul does not quote the passage, that is Isaiah 28, as having any prophetic reference to the events in Corinth. And then he goes on to say, it's a simple reference to a signal event in Jewish history from which the Corinthians derive a useful lesson. In other words... um, Hodge says, Paul is not looking at Isaiah 28.11 and say, saying it finds climactic fulfillment in this case of speaking tongues as a covenant, sign of covenant curse against the Jews. He says, here's the issue. There's an analogy. The analogy is this. When you speak in the place of God, a covenantal message to those who need to hear, yet you speak in a language they don't understand, it's curse. That's the simple argument that Paul is making from this passage. When you speak in the place of God to other people, and you speak to them in a language or in such a way that they cannot understand, it's simply a curse to them. And why is it a curse to them? The reason why it's a curse to them is because they don't understand It basically amounts to hiding uh, the gospel from those who so desperately need it. That's basically what's going on here. And that's what's happening now as you look at these believers. In verse 23, he says, If the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? Uh, basically, Paul envisions a situation where you have the church gathered for worship. That's what he's talking about when he says the whole church assembles together. And you have believers and unbelievers, but to particularly now, he's focusing in on unbelievers. And he says they hear these tongue speakers standing up, uh, uh, prattling in some foreign language that's completely inconceivable to them. What the Apostle Paul says is it's a curse to the unbeliever. Because instead of hearing the message of the Word of God, instead of hearing the message of the Gospel, instead of hearing the convicting, uh, searching function of the law, they're not understanding a thing. And as they experience this, their only conclusion is that these people are crazy. The other thing before we move on from this that I think is instructive for us to see is that uh, Paul says they're unbelievers. You might ask the question, well, how did an unbeliever get there? How did an unbeliever show up in the Corinthian worship assembly? Well, we know that they didn't advertise on the internet. And they found their way to the Corinthian assembly because they saw uh, the First Church of Corinth and their really really awesome website. Uh, We know that they didn't get there because they looked it up in the yellow pages. Uh, We know that they didn't get there because the First Church of Corinth had such a beautiful and impressive building with a sign out front announcing the worship times that they said, Hey, I'd really like to go check out that church. Because, of course, they didn't have church buildings in. You go through all the options of how these people got there and you begin to realize the reason why the unbelievers are there is because somebody from the church asked them to come. Now imagine this. Think through that and apply this concept that the Apostle Paul is speaking of here. Imagine inviting your friends to church on Sunday morning because you want them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ because you know that they are unbelievers and they're headed for judgment because they don't know the Lord. And you say, please come to my church. And yet when your friend arrives at church, everything that is done within the flow and the context of that service is done in a foreign language. So that person never hears the gospel of Christ. Now you're beginning to see why it is that this speaking in tongues, which is a foreign language that those these particular believers didn't understand, was a curse because they didn't understand anything and the gospel was being hidden and veiled to them. So the Apostle Paul says, this is what it is to be evil in your thinking. This is what it is to be infantile in your thinking. The Apostle Paul is rebuking that mentality of the Corinthians and saying... You be mature. Not only are tongues unedifying to the saints when they're not translated, they're absolutely useless when you're communicating the gospel to people who don't understand those languages. And you in your arrogance and your selfishness are worshiping in a way that you like, drawing attention to yourself, but is deeply sinful and displeasing to God. And it's absolutely useless to the person who needs to hear the gospel. See, they're hiding the gospel while they're pretending to be reaching out to the lost. But here's the real aim of this passage here. And, and I think that this is what's so important. This is where the principle of uh, what it truly means to have uh, uh, biblical seeker-sensitive worship is the apostle rebukes uh, the false... An unbiblical and sinful use of tongues. And now in verse 24, he expounds upon prophecy. And he says, this is what you really need to do uh, when you're gathered together for worship. In verse 24, he says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever, an ungifted person enters, he is convicted by all. And he is, accounted, he is called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Here the Apostle Paul says, instead of using tongues that uh, call attention to yourself, this is what you need to do. You need to prophesy. You need to preach uh, the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. And of course the reason why the Apostle Paul commends prophecy is because of its function here. He says if an unbeliever comes in and he hears the preaching of the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God, whether that's from a text of Scripture or whether that's a direct revelation from God, and in this case I would argue it's direct, uh, infallible, inspired revelation from God, he says when you do that, the sinner is convicted and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. You see, the function of prophecy, the function of the preaching of the Word of God is to convict people of sin. It's so vivid here in the words and the way that Paul described it. as convicted. And that means, uh, basically, it's, it's like a lawyer uh, bringing charges against somebody in a court of law, uh, stating that they have offended uh, God in some way, and then showing the proof. But it's not just as if it's a sort of objective, clinical, external prosecution. Because it's not just that everybody evaluating the case, including the judge, can see that the external actions are contrary to the law. What the Apostle Paul goes on to say is that the word penetrates into the depths of the heart and lays bare its secrets. In other words, what the Apostle is saying is that the Word of God sinks into the very depths of the inner being and exposes not just to those who are outside watching, but to the person consciously and internally that they would understand the sense of their sinfulness and their guilt. In other words, the law is showing them guilt. And precisely how the preacher describes it in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. You don't have to turn there. Uh, but I think that passage sort of illuminates for us uh, this prophetic powerful function of the word because the preacher there says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart and then he goes on to say this there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do now the preacher here describes uh, certain attributes of the word, and we'll come back to that in a moment, but what he's primarily focusing on is functions of the word, and those functions are very parallel to what the Apostle Paul says here when he says the secrets of the heart are laid bare. Because the preacher in Hebrews chapter 4 says that the word of God pierces. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces. It has the sense of an arrow shooting into the depths of the heart. Very different ways here that uh, the preacher speaks of the exposing functions of the word. It's very poetic, but it's basically saying it's stripping away every layer of deception and hardness. And it's exposing the sinfulness of the human heart to the person. So that there's no more hiding places, there's no more masks to put on, there's nowhere else to run. In other words, what the preacher is saying is this is what the Word of God does. It strips away all of your defenses and it leaves you consciously aware of one thing. You're sinful and you're guilty. It looks at the things you say, the things you think, the plans you intend. It exposes those to the light of the law of God and it shows them to be Uh, Out of accord of what God requires. And then it judges them. That's what the preacher says. It judges them. And shows you your guiltiness and condemnation to judgment. And that is what the Apostle Paul says he wants the Corinthians to do. He says, stop hiding the Gospel. Stop hiding the truth from people when they come to church. Stop substituting for God's Word human ideas. Stop thinking that somehow God needs you to assist Him in bringing the elect to Jesus Christ by coming up with clever ways to get people into church and calling it Christian when they show up. He says what people need to hear and even believers is the preaching of the Word of God in such a way that the Word of God when it is delivered and proclaimed that it is quick and sharp and powerful and piercing and penetrating and exposing so that those who are there will sense their guilt. Now I can't help... But take that principle, which I said in this particular uh, context and passage, outlines for us a biblical concept of what it means to be seeker-sensitive, and apply it to the context of today. Because remember, Paul is attacking sinful practices in worship, so it's a parallel, it fits. And it speaks directly to the church, which would reshape its worship into a light, fun, celebration atmosphere that completely cloaks the gospel. It says nothing about sin, nothing about guilt, nothing about condemnation, and nothing about judgment. Paul says, wrong. That's to be evil in your thinking. That's to be immature. That's to be childlike. I was reading a comment, uh, or rather it wasn't just a comment, it was a portion of, of a very elaborate set of instructions on, on how to reach uh, non-Christians in a worship service. Of course, this was uh, somebody who was explaining uh, the purpose-driven model, which was incubated, hatched, and applied just right here in our backyard in Southern California, and uh, here is what uh, the author said. Connected to the Spirit of God, music is the most powerful tool available to reach and win your target. You see, it's music that is what the church needs. Music to help reach Now never mind that unbelievers are being viewed as if uh, they are consumers who are being wooed and won by marketing techniques. Here is the kind of music that we are told is the powerful tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit to win targets to Jesus. We're told that the kind of music the Spirit uses is non-threatening in order that it may open the heart. Now as I evaluate that particular principle over against uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 24, and 25, in Hebrews chapter 4, 12, and 13, you can see that it's exactly the opposite. Prophesy, the Apostle Paul says. Because when that happens, the unbeliever is convicted, and the secrets of the heart are disclosed. It's not music that reaches targets. It's God taking His Word and using the Holy Spirit to direct the Word to the heart of man to show him his guilt and his sinfulness before the Lord. And when that happens, the Apostle Paul says, finally, that people are made aware of God's presence. Notice the last part of verse 25. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. A truly biblical, seeker-sensitive worship makes people aware of God's presence. It makes people aware of God's presence. It's unmistakable here in this passage, especially in the original, because uh, what you have is this word certainly affronted to the very beginning of the clause. Certainly, that's the first thing that the unbeliever says, or rather, now the convicted believer, the one who's had uh, the thoughts and secrets and intentions of the heart laid bare before God through the power of God's Word. The first thing. That we are told that the unbeliever who's now been converted by the word of God says is certainly God is in your midst. The reason is because the word of God mediates to us the presence of God. The word of God mediates to us the presence of God. And so Paul says to the church, if you want to worship uh, the way that is pleasing to me and useful to the evangelism of the lost. We must aim to preach the Word of God in a powerful, penetrating way that exposes guilt, talks about sin, and helps people see that the only remedy is Jesus. And that leads us to a couple of principles and conclusion this morning. And the first one I would say is that we are bound to seek a sense of the presence of God in worship where it may be found. We are bound to seek and to sense an awareness of the presence of God where it may be found. And that sense and awareness of the presence of God may be found where God has appointed it to be found in the Word and in the sacraments. Uh, it's just amazing to me, as you read the church growth literature and the seeker-sensitive literature and the new worship literature. Uh, it's just it's sort of pop psychology, pop spirituality A God is found in all different kinds of ways, but it's almost never through the preaching of the Word of God. And here Paul makes it so painfully clear that the way that we experience and sense an awareness of God as His God is made central, as His Word is made central. Secondly, what the Apostle Paul does here by connecting a preaching of the Word that aims at guilt which then drives a person to conscious awareness of the presence of God, the Apostle instructs us in what we ought to expect when we come to worship. The Apostle uh, instructs us in terms of what we ought to expect. And that is that when we come to church, we will often feel uncomfortable. And we will often feel a sense of our sinfulness and our guiltiness. Because God has designed it in such a way that when the Word is preached, when the law and the Gospel is preached, that there are different emotions which are experienced. And to basically make the only emotion that you're allowed to feel or sense or experience in this new reshaped worship is one of joy and happiness and euphoria and celebration is to completely miss the kind of emotion that God does want you to have. That's fine to be joyful in the presence of the Lord forevermore. We know that's okay because the Word of God commends it and tells us that's what it is to be in the presence of the Lord, joy forevermore. But there is also a need for a sense of guilt in order that you do learn to find joy in the Lord forevermore. You see, that's the convicting function of the law to show us our sinfulness in order that we may turn to Jesus as we see that He is the only remedy for it. So, this is one reason why we read the law when we gather for worship on Sunday, is so that we do see our sin. Very important that for the worship of God to be biblical and to be correct and to be Christ-centered is that it is worship that shows us our sinfulness. It shows us our guilt so that then we realize that in and of ourselves we are helpless and that Jesus is our remedy because He is our Savior. And when we run to Christ as the Word teaches us, then we are entitled to the joy of the Gospel which tells us that Jesus saved us all by His grace freely and mercifully. And so that, the Apostle Paul says, is sinker-sensitive worship. It's worship that God has ordained for our good and for our edification, for the conversion of the lost, and for the glory of God's name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We pray that you would help us to be made firm and sure and strong. You took bread.